Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by writer and podcaster Emily Gagne and TV and film editor Jordan Hales. Coming of age. Usually it's taken to mean a movie about children or adolescents reaching a certain phase of maturation where they face an adult issue and come away changed. They can be heartbreaking, they can be hilarious. The best ones are both. But what a really solid one should do is not just give you a nostalgic thrill for your own youth and shenanigans, like my experience watching Turning Red a few months ago, but also give you an insight into an experience you didn't have. Today, we're going to look at two movies by filmmakers with distinctive voices who, in my opinion, hit their coming-of-age movies out of the park. But before we get into that, Jordan, is there a coming-of-age movie that makes you wax nostalgic about your own youth? It's so funny because of the coming-of-age movies that I researched online because it wasn't necess- it's not necessarily a genre that I refer to as what it is. Um, so I didn't realize that a lot of the movies that I watched as, as a kid or in my teenage years, they were coming-of-age films. Uh, but specifically for my own life experience, um, Boys in the Hood, because to <sighs> some degree, it's something that I relate to. But then there's also, like, Hardball as well. But, yeah, it's Boys in the Hood was the one that, like, stuck with me the most because of um, my own experiences. But also, it's it's the quintessential Black film. Uh, black youth film of that time, especially as a child growing up in the 90s, right? So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's one that I definitely lean into and has inspired me still to this day. That's a great call. What's a movie, too, that I think does find the balance, where it has moments where it's, like, really funny and irreverent and really clever, but then ob- yeah. obviously has, is dealing with some extremely serious subjects. And yeah. I think that movie finds that balance absolutely perfectly, like to our two movies today as well. Yeah, it, um, what about it that really... Um, sticks out is the humanity of it all because when you look at in the 90s black characters always depicted as like on either extreme either like they're extremely one way or the extremely other and we've mainly seen like the other in a negative aspect but it gave them humanity it gave them light where there was darkness but it wasn't always that you know what i'm saying even even a movie like menace to society like as as violent as as it is, it still takes you on a journey through living in a circumstance that is downtrodden, but at the same time you can find some kind of hope within it, although it doesn't end hopeful, you know what I mean? But Boys in the Hood, it really just gives a glimpse inside of the uh the black male experience, you know what I'm saying? The humanity, being able to tap into the humanity and those universal points of, as we grow, what we need to know to be to be humans, to interact in the world, to just be here. Yeah, and it, yeah. and it's really about seeing all of these films 
um even even like a movie like ladybird right mm. which i which obviously i cannot directly relate to but in the terms of the growing pains of an adolescence and then kind of figuring out who you are that's the relatable part of it but it's just yeah. a matter of like what boys in the hood did to to pretty much validate my experience on film because mm. there wasn't a lot of those depictions especially as broad as far of a reach that boys in the hood had um so that's what really changed the game and that's what really you know lingers in my mind in terms of when i first watched in the house it still resonates uh, for me today. Emily, do you have anyone that really hits for you? I know you, you need to know this, Jordan, is that Emily and I are both big fans of 90s girl movies. So like okay. all of the teen okay. ensemble movies that came out, we've covered like nine of them on this podcast as a direct result. Oh, wow. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, we did a whole episode about Kirsten Dunst, who was somebody that was very formative to my youth. But um, Lady Bird is a movie that definitely like captures an experience for me, for sure. Um, but uh, a movie that I feel like is very underrated in the coming of age canon, and it's a little bit younger than teenage years, is My Girl, which oh, is yeah. a movie that a lot of people think about as being just like a sappy movie about a boy that dies when he gets stung by a bunch of bees. But it's really a movie <laughs> about a young girl that's like finding herself like she gets her period for the first time and she doesn't understand what it means because she's raised by a dad who's very emotionally detached, even uh, and partially the reason he's emotionally detached is because his wife died and he works in um, a mortuary. So, like, it, I think a lot of films about coming of age sometimes, like, get a rap of, like, not being serious. And I think that we sometimes we don't treat, like, teen experiences as serious as we should. So, like, sometimes it's really nice to watch a movie where you're, like, and both of these movies we're going to talk about today, I feel like, really do this. Like, they validate a young person's experience and that like it's sometimes it's hard being a kid yeah you maybe don't have all the responsibilities of being an adult but some kids do and like especially in boy it's like he's taking care of all of his siblings you know yeah um and not every kid lives that experience but there's lots of kids that do what do you guys think about coming to these movies as adults and seeing that point of view versus being like a young person and seeing yourself reflected in it it's really more eye-opening when you watch it as an adult because you kind of transport yourself to when you were a kid and didn't necessarily have the intelligence, wisdom, life experience that you have as an adult. And so looking back on it, there are a lot of things that you pick up on and you notice it's like, oh, wow, like those are not things that would have registered in my mind like, you know, many years prior. So it's just a matter of having more of that wisdom and that intellect because of the life experience that was brought into um, multiple views uh, as an adult. So yeah, that, that's pretty much just noticing um, a lot of the themes or dialogue or just like, you know, just the settings and just how it related to how you grew up because you don't necessarily know or really register the conditions in which you grow up until you get to be an adult and you're looking back on it or you go back to the neighborhood. It's just like, oh, it seemed so much different because they weren't problems that you were focusing on. You're just focusing on your own innocence or lack thereof that you kind of lost, but it was still in there because you had like your friends and you have the kind of protection, you have that community. But once that's all gone and you go back to it, it's just like, oh 
this is actually much different than what I actually experienced. And it's the same with watching these movies back. Like at first it's just like, oh, it's a cool movie, Ice Cube's in it and Morris Chestnut and Cool Gooding Jr. and whatnot. But it's just a matter of like, oh no, there are actual real themes in here to take away from um, that kind of give you um, a more empowering feeling to go forward. There's a line in Submarine that's kind of like hitting for me right now as we're talking um, where he's like, I'm not going to remember this when I'm 38. He keeps saying that like and then he's then eventually he's like, I am going to remember this when I'm 38, which which I feel like is so true. Where like there's even like little moments that you'll forget about your youth, but then you watch a movie and it like, yeah, it brings you right back. Or you even like maybe blocked that thing out because it was painful for you. And then this movie brings it back up for you. And I think it's like healthy to kind of look back on those those moments and be like how have I changed too uh as a person and what did I sort of learn from that time in my life um Mm. because we are learning so much we're like even um he Oliver says that like a few times he's in his relationship with her like you know we're, we're learning stuff about each other and we're all constantly learning and coming of age also to me I don't know what you guys think but like I know we think of it being a teen experience, but I think it happens throughout our lives. Like one of my yeah. favorite movies of all time is called Hello, My Name is Doris. And it's oh, yes. this movie about Sally Field as like an older woman sort of like having a relationship with this younger man or trying to. And it feels like a coming of age story, too, because she is at a point of learning something new about herself and exploring sort of a different side of herself. And um, so I think that's why we get so attracted to these coming of age, traditional coming of age stories, too, because we ourselves are always growing. Um, it's just that like the teen years are when we really start to be, I think, aware of the growing. Mm. And when you're also capable of making really life altering decisions and mistakes, right? Like you you say that. And I think about the movie Slapshot, which is I will not say it's a guilty pleasure because I fucking love Slapshot. Slapshot. But but that's a movie that's also coming of age, right? It's Paul Newman having to grow up and if he wants his wife back, that's what he's going to have to do. And he doesn't get her back at the end, but he does win the game. It's a great movie. But um, it can be any age, but we do associate it with teenagers because, yeah, that's when teenagers make mistakes. And that's when we, we can look back and go, oh, my life changed there because I made these decisions. All right, well, let's get into our first movie today. So as a huge fan of Taika Waititi, I actually struggle what to do with Boy because it has the sweet emotionality of movies like Hunt for the Wilder People and Eagle vs. Shark with the bone-dry sense of humor that I also love from both of those movies. But for some reason, I actually find this film extremely painful to watch, and I think because large swaths of it remind me of my own family in rural Alberta and things I have seen and stories I have heard. And at the ending of the movie, although it gives me some hope for the eponymous character of Boy, it makes me worry for him just as much, which I suppose is a good thing, because for me, Boy reads as real, even with the Michael Jackson thriller dance by way of Haka segment, which is just delightful. Um, Jordan, did this one read as real to you as well? Yes, because when you've been raised in an environment um, that is predominantly with uh, single parents and their kids, that's something that you see a lot of. Many of my friends who had parents who were two jobs so was, and they had siblings so they were forced to grow up at younger ages to care for the younger siblings just because like you know that was just the reality so boy was just like all right this is definitely real and then you have the father coming back into the fold but like not really present and uh super advantageous and manipulative and whatnot so it's like yeah, those are all very real experiences. And it was 
great to know that this is something that it's, it's a global issue. You know what I'm saying? It's obviously from my point of view, it's, it, you know, this is what's happening in Scarborough, but I know that this happens in West Central Toronto. I know this happens all over Ontario in this country, but it happens all over the world. But to see it depicted um, with New Zealand's culture and just the fact that like, you know, these kids are no different from kids that I was raised with. It's just a, um, a different socioeconomic structure, but it was the reality that I was surrounded by. So no, this is a, it, it was a great depiction. It definitely felt real to me. Can you give us a quick little plot summary just for people who may not have seen this one yet? Okay, so Boy is about Boy, the main character. And uh, it is pretty much, uh, it is a coming of age story that, sees boy caring for his younger siblings his grandmother goes into town for about a week for a funeral and so he has to be the man in the house when a man comes back around calls himself his father and his dad and so having that absent figure he tries to transform himself in a way where he can kind of mirror his father because that is a presence that he is yearned for and has wanted to have that respect and so he gets himself um caught up in a pretty much identity crisis foregoing his initial responsibilities and gradually just turning into somebody who he doesn't necessarily want to be but somebody that he's always aspired to be because he didn't know if this person would ever come back into his life. So it was a beautiful film. Hero worship thing is so interesting to me of be yeah. like, you build this person up in your mind and this person is gone and then they come back. And it's, it's the old trope of you don't meet your heroes, kids. Just don't do it. It's never yeah. good for anybody. Um, yeah. Emily, was this the first time you'd seen this one? Yeah, um, I've seen some of Taika's other films, including Hunt for the Wilder People, which I do think is like kind of like a sibling film to this film in a lot of ways. Um, but it was my first time and I was really just taken by this movie. I it is perfectly like his style in terms of like very sweet, um, very silly, um, but also very sad. And uh it was just like just what I needed to watch on Sunday night. And I was like, I kept being like, This kid that plays boy, like how is he not in every movie? Like he's so good. Mm -hmm. And I Becky, like I know you were you were saying that he um wasn't actually supposed to play the lead role in this film uh and he got cast like at the last minute he was just like a kid in that town which is where taika actually grew up and i'm just like so amazed because he just seems so naturally charming and perfect and almost he looks like taika too like i feel like it feels like they are like father and, and son to me he said that the original the original kid he had cast was like past the point of adolescence like he was talking about getting a tattoo he was nearly as tall as taika it was mm -hmm. like eh. but for this to really work you need a kid young enough that kind of what's coming out of his mouth is a little bit shocking because there is that awareness of uh, of his, his age and how old he actually is versus the actions he's having to take on. Mm -hmm. And that shocking behavior is kind of what makes the film tick. The dialogue itself was really funny. Uh, I definitely laughed at a lot of moments just because of how corny and witty um, that the characters were. Uh, a character that really uh, resonated with me a lot was Rocky. 
Mm -hmm. um because he's like really shy and like you know he he's still trying to like really find his voice but he pretty much has his own identity like he knows who he is and it's just the constant observance and the sympathy and compassion that he displayed especially uh with the character that they that they refer to as a weirdo and now like he befriends him and you know he still has that innocence of thinking that he has superpowers and like that that was sweet um but also like he serves as uh, kind of grounding for a boy because it's a reminder like no well you have your responsibilities here like this is your younger brother and then but as much as boy is to protect rocky and his siblings like rocky served as a protection piece for boy to kind of bring him back to like you know what he wants to be especially when the father left and then in the in the scene where they're in the tub outside and he's washing off the fake tattoos like that was uh, that was a beautiful scene and it just is representative of their brotherhood but also just like kind of shedding um the identity that boy thought he wanted and just like no this is who i am so let me just take off this facade and get back to what really matters and that's uh you know my siblings my family yeah this movie is really difficult for me to watch as i said because i i have a lot of family in rural alberta that is very much this you know it's like 14 kids they all look after each other they run wild occasionally an adult will come in and go nobody dead great thanks i'm going to play bingo you know what i mean like that's very much kind of how it works but one of the things i think that makes it easier to watch and this is actually something he was going for is as you mentioned rocky there's this element of surreality that he adds in with these fun little animations and stuff of like yeah. the superpower ideas he comes in. Um, what did you think of those? He does the same thing in Eagle versus Shark where he has these little animations with like this apple core one of the characters eats that she throws away it grows legs and goes on an adventure throughout the film um, which has nothing to do with it. it's just fun stuff. Um, does that pull you out or do you find that adds to the narrative? I liked it personally. I, I thought it kind of added and kind of reminded you that these are kids and that like how where our imaginations can go like i remember one of the first examples of the the animation or the drawings is sort of when um rocky is like imagining this car that he can flip over or whatever which is obviously like we know from a production perspective like they couldn't flip a car over and like have that happen even he in didn't an have that marvel money yet <laughs> no <laughs> to he get didn't to Thor. <laughs> right. um but i think that it's sort of like it just it, it just reminds us of the age of these of these kids and that this is this is kids um i thought it was like it was very well paired with some of the other like sort of fantastical scenes like the the dance sequence and like mm-hmm. the like dance fight sequence like i think yeah. it adds to this whole sort of like um fantastical quality and and like fantasy that you have as a kid where you have this rich sort of like imagination and rich imaginative life yeah it was uh it was uh just uh piggybacking off the uh the dance sequence the dance fight sequence and every time that a situation would arise where um boy is seeing his father how he wants to see him and whatnot is like this big tough guy and he's talked him up and whatnot but then just a quick cut later, it's like he's getting beat up by these guys and just like, well, no, this is the reality. But I'm just like, yeah, I like that we get into the mind of, of the child, you know what I mean? Just because pointing to what else you were saying about having that imagination, but that also needs to still be apparent and very present because this is the vantage point of how we're 
viewing the film and how the audience should be receiving it. Um, so yeah, no, that was that was fun. I loved all the the pop reference, um, the pop culture references in there, especially you know all the Michael Jackson because Michael Jackson was all the rage. He's all the rage when you're a kid. Period. So the fact that it was that is true and. You know, in the 80s, is true in... In the middle of nowhere, New Zealand. Like, of course they know who Michael Jackson is, right? Yeah, so no, no that, was, uh, that was great. That was great. Hey, Chardonnay! Want to see some Michael Jackson dance moves? First film he just decided he was going to make is called Two Cars, One Night. Uh, and it was his Oscar-nominated short film. And it is about two kids, two little boys and a little girl in cars parked outside a bar while their parents are inside having drinks and partying. And they just leave their kids out front because that's what, what you would do. And one of the little boys goes in and tries to hit on the little girl, even though she's like 12 and he's like eight. And they kind of form this actual bond and friendship in this very brief period where they're outside in these two separate cars. Um, it's perfection. And the way and you can see why it was nominated for an Oscar. It's also visually very unusual in like um, the the filming style. Like you can see someone here has a voice that was supposed to be ex extrapolated and become his first movie, which would have been Boy. But instead, he decided to do Eagle versus Shark because he wanted to do something that was um, a little. He didn't know what to do with the story to make it bigger, to talk about these kids in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and. I mean, there's so many kids' movies, as you talked about, Emily, like My Girl, people are like, this is twee, this is cutesy, it's saccharine. You can't really dig into it in that way. And when you choose to focus on kids, that that can often become the issue, is adults can't really connect to it in that way. This one is very much about adults watching it and going, I know what that is, while still having a kid's point of view. I'm wondering what it would be like if you showed this to like a nine, 10 year old and how they would interpret it versus an adult. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they might think this is a dream. Like they're like, oh, I get to just hang out and do stuff with my friends and my dad's really cool. And like, you know, I, I have a goat for a friend like, <laughs> who dies um, the goat dies i don't like it i can't with the goat uh yeah. but yeah i think he, they would think it was cool but they also might be they might be touched i think like we need to give kids more credit for being really emotionally aware yeah um, <laughs> it, it just depends on which child that i show this movie to because yeah. i think it's the it's the father absence and then that false hope of the dad coming back into life for a genuine reason only for him to leave again that's very triggering like even for me as an adult I just got through my dad issues and I'm about to be 33 years old you know what I'm saying? dude that's you are beating many people by a mile <laughs> dealing with that good for you so it's just like just watching him just like ah I know what this is like the disappointment and then um when like there's a look on boy's face when he really sees his dad for who he is and that disappointment is stricken and it's just washed all over his face i'm just like i know that face i've made that face many times so it's just a matter of like i'm i'm glad that i'm in a better place now where i can receive this kind of movie because had this been i don't know a couple of years back i've just been like yeah this is kind of emotionally jarring for me and I think for a lot of for a, a lot of kids who grew up in the same kind of circumstance who have grown to be adults who have like their own kids, I still think that it would be tough for them to watch because it will put them back in a place where they were forced 
to be the man in the house and to take care of their own siblings and not having that father presence or having that presence that was constantly in and out and then out and then never came back. To your point, kids these days are definitely more emotionally receptive. And I think that's because of the, the generation of older and younger millennials who have children and who are able to properly uh, vocalize when emotional needs are you know needed and just how sympathetic, empathetic um, that they are to their kids and encouraging them to be more expressive of their emotions and talking to them a certain way where they can feel emotionally safe to talk about their emotions. That's why you know movies like this will resonate with them and they'll have more of an opinion of it because they've already been uh, groomed, not in a negative way, to receive um, really open-minded emotional uh, stories that they can you know, talk about and relate to. I've heard uh, our generation referred to as the therapy generation, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. People have been trying to do this and kind of reconcile these these feelings for a long time through film. Um, but I think you're right, is that we kind of had to wait till 2010 to get something that would have this sort of language and this understanding of kids that has the the sensibilities and the points of view that it does that could resonate across both. Yeah, I mean... I think like the teen genre sort of goes in and out. And I think there was a period like in the late 90s and early 2000s, which we kind of talked about a, a little bit earlier on this season, um, where like teen stories were like heightened and almost like a little bit like surreal, like kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, like these girls with these perfect outfits and, and that kind of thing. And I think that like this newer wave is reflective of, of sort of what you were saying, Jordan, this like new generation of creators that like are more intense. In- in touch with their emotions and want to make something that has a little bit more um, meat on its bones and is speaking to like really serious emotional issues. Like, I don't know, I think about something like Juno, which I know gets a lot of like flack and sometimes people think it's like quite twee, but um, even that film is like taking this girl's experience very seriously in in a way, even though it's like heightened and silly and there's like this dialogue that's like over the top. Um, I think that kind of movie paved the way for a lot of other movies that would come after this. Like, I, like there was like The Spectacular Now is like another movie that I think about coming out after this me and earl and the dying girl like there's just all these movies that i think are not new like i i kept thinking about um harold and maude with our mm-hmm. second movie for example and like there, there's been stories like this but i think we go through waves of of being ready for this kind of storytelling and i also think we have to note that this is an especially special example because this is about aboriginal children experience in mm-hmm. new zealand it's it's I, I haven't seen a story about this particular experience ever. It's interesting because Taika talks about that and that his awareness, he himself is Maori and he, he talks about um, feeling, of course, that responsibility as this filmmaker to tell the story with the, with these voices, etc. Um, but his big thing, and I agree with him, is he's like so many stories about Indigenous kids are total downers. And he's not incorrect. He, he points to um, Once We're Warriors, which is an amazing film, and he is correct. It's just not fun to watch. It's very, very challenging. And you can look at the Canadian film industry as well. And a lot of our films here about Indigenous culture are incredibly sad because the circumstances are incredibly challenging and incredibly complicated and very difficult. Yeah. What I think Taika figures out here is that there is a sense of fun 
while still addressing the serious issues. I mean, the sense of humor and the play and the fact that they've added added in the animations, um, that is like kind of the spoonful of sugar that lets the medicine go down. So you're still taking in all these very difficult, challenging concepts, but you're you're making it easier for an audience to connect. It's crazy because I don't, the last, and I was actually talking to my uh, my lady about this, the only movie that has made me cry in my life, and I can pretty much confirm this, was Hardball. And I was, yeah, yes, ten, yes, yes. I was like 10 years old. So, and for me, I don't cry easily anyways. Like the last time I cried was two years ago. So for me, like, yeah, I could sit down and watch like a difficult movie or something like that or something that's emotionally touching and just be like, okay, well, this is this is sad. It's nice, but like, okay, this is this is nice. But uh I understand the need to really have uh difficult movies be uh very di- digestible to a wider audience in order to get a read so that it's easier because the reason why people enjoy going to the movies or why we watch movies because it serves as an escape not necessarily wanting to confront us with the real issues at hand, although there are movies that talk about real issues that are happening and you can't escape that. And it's just a matter of like, yeah, where it's here for entertainment, it's also here for education. And it's a gateway to learning more about whatever subject that you're watching on screen, which is why biopics are you know, pretty popular is because they can lead to people researching about documentaries about the subject and reading books. And that allows the education to happen, but it's still in the form of entertainment. While we're There's a reason why Hidden Figures was one of the biggest movies of that year in which the book was that enormous. Then you see a bunch right. more stuff about that, right? It's these gateways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I Listen, I like, I like watching sad movies. I like, I was just talking to a friend last night and I said, a movie can be like made on a lower budget you know, the acting's not perfect, but if it makes me feel something, then Mm. I will love the movie. And a movie can be made perfectly, technically look great, but if I don't feel anything, I'm not going to walk away. See, that's too much sugar and not enough medicine. That's the opposite issue, right? <laughs> so, uh, so then you, you you're just getting empty calories as opposed to having the the right. dose of the you There's know no the digestible there. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's this. Okay, so last question as we kind of wrap this up: Do you guys think boy would be okay? Is going to be okay? And does that matter? Is that the point? Yes, mm-hmm. he will be okay because through the experience that he had with the disappointment of his father not being the man that he thought he was and because you saw him go through all those emotions like you know the optimism at school telling his friends like oh yeah my dad is coming back to the overwhelming enjoyment of having him around but then experience a disappointment like in those letdowns and then fully on like you know lashing out fighting him in the garage and whatnot which was I mean, every, there are a lot of children who wish that they could fight their fathers like that. <laughs> yes. I know, but it's just like you kind of shrink at that opportunity because you either hold that in, but you're just like too afraid to confront that. But boy will be okay because he went through all those emotions, but he still understands his role in what he means to his family and what his family means to him. And that's why he'll be okay. He has good roots. And plus, he lives with his grandmother. Grandmothers are pretty good on, you know, cultivating good men 
to be leaders in life for their families. So that's all right. His auntie played by Rachel House, who runs the local, um, uh, like the local yeah. co- convenience store too, seems oh, yeah. like whenever things need to be stepped in on, she steps yeah. in on them, which, yeah. which I'm like, good work. I think that these, like the family, the boys, Rocky as well, like the, the ending, I, I loved so much when he asked the dad, like, how was Japan? And he like knows that he didn't go to Japan, but he asked anyways. And I just was like, these boys are so emotionally intelligent that that I do think that they'll be okay, and that mm-hmm. they're like almost better off than their than their dad, who I think is still kind of a little bit in the clouds himself, and has had to come back down to earth a little bit with losing that money and and everything. So, um, I feel like I came away from this movie feeling positive like I could have felt sad but I think the way that he portrays it and the way that we've seen the characters even grow throughout the film makes me think that they're they're going to be okay and they've made the best of their circumstance so far and I wanted to put out one last thing before I move on uh even the father kind of grew himself because the last shot he actually climbed over the fence and actually went to sit at the at the grave site of his uh you know wife or whatever that they they were but yeah like that even him doing that because beforehand he couldn't face that so and you know and the fact that he was asked like did you go see her you know what i'm saying and like he didn't it was hard for him to do that but you know he was humbled in such a crazy way because like you know boy found the money but then it got eaten and then like boy bring it to him and then having to face that disappointment and the wrath of boy because he was so angry because he realized that was the only reason why he came back was just for this he didn't necessarily care about him but that growth came about when he actually faced what he was running away from and trying he was avoiding confronting but once he sat literally sat with it and then to see boy and rocky there to give him that comfort they'll all be all right it was a nice it was a nice ending all right i think that's the perfect note for us to end into our next movie where maybe the kids will be all right it's the uk the kids will be fine that's coming up after the break (laughs) richard ayoade is very very funny At least I find him to be so. Known primarily in the U.S. as an actor and comedian, his delivery is an odd but effective mix of enthusiastic and monotone, which also translates tonally into his debut feature, Submarine. Based on a novel of the same name by Welsh author Joe Dunthor, it's a movie that could be alienatingly specific, but instead comes out as charming and cringy, which is exactly what I want from my UK comedies. Emily, did you find the same thing? Yeah, this was my first time watching Submarine, uh, which is shocking because it, it is a movie that I feel like I would have watched um, at that time period. But I also realized that I was in my early 20s. And so I think I was more interested in watching 500 Days of Summer, which I feel ah. like has a similar feel to this movie. Um, but this is a this is a fun but also sad movie that um I think I'm definitely gonna revisit again like I I think it uh it's just it, it reminds me of like a lot of the references that it makes in the movie it, it feels like Harold and Maude it feels like Catcher in the Rye it feels like all of these movies that like we were saying earlier just like treat young people's experiences very seriously and 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 tap into that like emotional awareness that they have like I think not getting too far into it but the lead character of this film is like 
Larry tapped into so many people in his life and trying to make things better. And I think the crushing thing is like realizing like you can't always make things better for everyone else. Also, when you are brutally selfish and incapable of actually thinking about anyone outside yourself, even when you're, you think that's what you're doing. Yeah. Yes, yes. You're Well, it's like, are you doing these things for other people because you think it's going to help them or you think it's going to help you in the long run? Like, are you helping your, are you trying to get your parents back together because you think they should be together? Or is it because you don't want your parents to, to split up and you think that that's going to be hard for you? With all that, do you want to give us a quick plot summary? Yes. As Jordan was saying, there's a lot that goes on in this movie, so I'm going to keep it short and then we can talk about the specific <laughs> things. Um, but basically, 15-year-old Oliver Tate is sort of like, I would say, looking for meaning in his life. He's looking to specifically beef up his biopic because this movie is sort of framed as his biopic. There's even a message from him at the start of the film. Anyways, he thinks that he's sort of going to find this, I think, with his classmate, Jordana, who is beautiful and mature, and I would love to hear your opinions on whether she's a manic pixie dream girl i don't think so but let's talk anyways uh, he thinks he's gonna find it through her um and then as he sort of gets into this relationship with her i think he starts learning more about himself than he expected and he learns um maybe how selfish he is and also he starts to uh learn a little bit more about his parents and realize that they are real people as well um so it's a coming of age story that sort of confronts that selfish part, you're right, that selfish part of, of teenagers sometimes where you are allowed to feel that way because, you know, this is your life and you don't have as much going on necessarily as you do as an adult. So like everything feels extra heightened. But in this film, everything is heightened, but there is a, a grounded in reality where like even his girlfriend, Jordana, like she has a really hard life herself and and yet she finds some joy and some pleasure and and things that she can share with him in the midst of going through a lot of grief herself. Oh man, this was um <laughs> this I I was really I was I was taken taken aback but in a great way because I didn't have any expectations as to what kind of movie I was going to watch. Uh completely different pacing, um the cinematography, just how everything was handled. I love the editing of it. Just because there's so many quick cuts, so many mirroring, uh, so many uh, things that were mirrored. Uh, and you're saying this is like editorial candy. You're like, yes, yeah, it was it was great. It was great. It's, <laughs> it's the kind of stuff that I really like. And it, it just goes to show when you have uh, so many chaotic moments within it. But I think because of the pacing and just how cutty this film was, it was how all of how Oliver's mind was operating because he was all over the place. He was sporadic and yeah, he was very selfish as well because when you're a kid and it's true, you want to have everything go right in your life. Like I can point to myself or any other kid who's like an only child is like, well, I want a sibling. Well, how do you, how do you get a sibling? Well, your mom and dad have to be together. So in order for me to get a sibling, they have to be together. And you try to do everything in your power to keep things together. You're having like, you know, your first kind of love and you want to hold on to that because you feel like if you lose that, you'll never love anybody again as much as your first love and everything else like that. So it's just a matter of going through those progressions in life. And again, it's a film that was very relatable. It's very funny. Uh, I'm glad that I not necessarily raised on UK film, but like, it's a genre that my mom enjoys. So I've watched 
some so it's just getting the understanding of like how witty they are and um just like dialogue is great and it was super quick but yeah i know it was a it was a it was a great film it was a great film and i do think along with uh what emily had to say was like i do think that i would probably revisit it again to watch because as much as it was entertaining it was still heartbreaking because you have the bullying and then you have the the realization that look our parents ain't shit a lot of times <laughs> so, but when you when you find that out as a kid it's like your whole world comes crashing down because you just want everything to be perfect and you assumed that it was at least good but when you find out that it's not as good as it as you thought it was it's like oh this sucks but that helps you grow and helps you understand your parents as people and so that you can kind of understand what kind of expectations to have on yourself as you become an adult you know what I mean so no it was a it's a great metaphor of life this is a film where I was thinking about the way this particular age because he's like 15, 16, like he's kind of in that age. And that's the age where like, yeah, you're not like a full-blown teenager. Like you're not 17, 18, like the, the, the leaving the nest is imminent, but you're also definitely out of being a kid. And the way he talks to adults, especially his parents, is this desperate attempt to have them take him seriously. And one of my favorite moments of this is when he is telling his mother that she has to get back together with the dad. And he's like, listen, he still finds you attractive. He still wants to make love to you. Are you making this up, Oliver? Me and Dad have discussed it. We both want to make this marriage work. Are you with us? So, an inappropriate conversation to have with your mother. Yeah, like I, I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell you if I, if I've even had sexual conver- like <laughs> conversations about sex with my mom since I had the initial talk. It's always like <laughs> implied. It just got to a point where it's like it was implied. I'm just like yeah i'm having sex but just it was never like oh in it details or stuff like that i'm just like so to hear that was just like oh that's <laughs> that was hilarious but this also seems like such a richard Ayoade film because and especially the way it's written it is very much based in the book and it's not word for word but it's one of those ones that was developed the movie was developed in tandem with the book the book was given to him before it was published and they had all these ideas and they kind of developed it together when it was released and this sense of humor is so Richard Ayoade in that it is bone dry, incredibly intelligent, but there is a frenetic pace that is going alongside it that nobody else does. And you talked about the editing being like quick, 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 quick. How did you find that worked in relation to how heady the dialogue is? And it's at points very slow and intellectual. It was very necessary and it fit well because of the fact that Oliver speaks quick um, off the rip. But when you have so many thoughts that are flowing in at the speed of light, that's how the brain operates. It's just a lot of flashing images. One of my favorite, um, what I really noticed it, um, just in terms of like where it was going, uh, when Oliver and Jordana are walking in the hallway together and it basically it's cutting to mirror images of them until they pass each other. Because it's just like, you know, like, it's it's uh, building that anticipation and just like to have that moment um, uh, uh, captured as, you know, something that was very intimate, but at the same time, very brief, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, no, just to see visually what goes into the brain of a teenager 
it worked really well. And even points where it was like, uh, like, you know, it just froze and went still like Guy Ritchie does that a lot too. Right. So I'm just like, oh, okay, this must be a whole UK <laughs> genre thing because I see a lot of those same elements in different movies that I've watched, even though I've never watched this particular movie until yesterday. So, you know, it was, uh, it, it was really good. And I, and I really enjoyed that. Um, it was constant. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it was quick when then when it did slow down, but when it got to the chaotic moments, you saw how it picked up with the dialogue and editing. And even the sound design was really good. The the big strings like came out of nowhere at times, but it just signified like, all right, this is a very dramatic point that's happening. But then the chaos just ensued uh, shortly after. This is a very brave and bold movie for someone's first movie like you're using narration you have all these incredible editing techniques it like diverts into like straight up farcical comedy at points with like the next door neighbor who's also wooing his his mom who's just like a caricature um like it's just sort of all over the place and one of the things i really respect about him is when i was watching um interviews and he was talking about how he felt better about making a movie because no one actually knows how to make movies every single movie is completely different you just kind of do the thing that feels right and hope that your instincts are correct and then because he's Richard Richard Ayoade he went back and corrected himself and said you know maybe John Ford knows how to make movies and it was like okay that was a very Richard Ayoade moment but do you guys think that's true do you think you just kind of go on instinct or do you think anyone actually knows how to make movies that's a great question so Emily you you go ahead I talked a lot about um I feel like okay so I have made I made a short film myself and I felt like before I made that I was like I feel like I need to know so much I need to like learn things and I hadn't gone to film school or anything and I I had this idea in my head that I needed to to know it all before I could do it and everyone that I talked to in the industry was like yes but also like like we've been talking about a lot today like film is an emotional and like subjective uh medium and i think that like it is what you want it to be of course you can learn the technical stuff but everybody can learn the technical stuff but the language of film is different for every person and that's what makes it so spectacular is that like somebody else could make this movie and make it very like traditional not so fun in terms of the cuts and make it less um like heady just just very traditional but he took it and did this and i think it's what makes it so exceptional so i i think that no one knows and there shouldn't be like a blueprint for film because if there was it would be boring and we'd have the same things all the time um, absolutely and i i take i take that the same approach with editing um i don't read i like i couldn't tell you the last time i actually picked up a book and like really studied the technical aspect of avid media composer or, or adobe premiere pro i don't necessarily study other editors in terms of what they do because when you listen to or watch interviews from other editors everything is very subjective and everything is instinctive editing is very instinctive you get a bunch of footage and it's just a matter of like all right how am i going to interpret it today and how is it going to look? And every editor has a different approach. So I'm just like, yeah, it's exactly what it is. Like, yeah, it's good to know. It's good to know the program. But at the same time, just what is your gut feeling? You know what I'm saying? And how are you going to interpret it? And what comes to the top of mind? So, yeah, it's good to not know things. So you can always be open to learning about so many things that you didn't know in order to make the thing that you really want. 
to make. You say that, and I think about Thelma Schoonmaker, who's Scorsese's longtime editor. In an, in an interview, someone said to her, uh, why would does such a nice lady like you work on such violent movies? And she says, they're not violent until I get a hold of them. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, that's exactly how that works, that sort of feeling. He saw this book, and he, one of the reasons he liked it so much is that he felt there was a, and, and, and it interpreted into the film, and I, I can see it. Let me know if you can, too. He compares Oliver to, to Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver a lot in terms of the way they have, like, oh, their own isolated world that is, and you're very much seeing the film through their point of view and the selfishness, and, like, there is a bit of a, like, a minor descent into madness. He breaks into someone's house. Like, there is, there is that happening. It's obviously not the scale of Taxi Driver, but you can see the same sort of arc happening. Can you guys see that in the movie? Hmm. Um, I mean, I don't think he's as bad as Travis <laughs> No, of course not. <laughs> scale, uh, matter of scale here, yes. <laughs> yeah, but it is, I think it's always interesting to see explorations of sort of like masculinity and the ways that like, and like maybe you can speak to this, Jordan, a little bit more as somebody who, you know, is a man himself. Uh, but I, I feel like um, I always think of Taxi Driver, like I, I know that character is a bad man, but I think part of what Scorsese is doing there is to be like, this is like not okay. Like, I don't think he's like con- condoning the activities of Travis Bickle. And I think that like this movie is also not saying, even though Oliver is the hero of our of our story, they're not saying that. Oliver is perfect like he probably shouldn't be like peeing on stuff you know like that's probably not the best response to something but he is doing that and and what can we glean from that and like what is he learning in the process um and I think at the end of this movie I think he's probably at a better place than Travis is at the end of Taxi Driver but I think it's important to have these explorations of of male characters sort of exploring um you know the limits of like toxic masculinity and so i can see in that way the link between the two what do you think jordan you you made really good points there and especially when it comes to the importance of exploring all forms of masculinity whether they be positive or negative uh, i know that we have a lot of examples of them being in the the negative space but what you see is the um the innocence of it all uh, from the beginning and then once you're at the tail end of it all the lived experience that is encapsulated inside is just a matter of shaping who he's gonna be on the other side of this you know what I'm saying like that moment especially at the end with him and uh, Jordana standing on the beach in the water and because of the recurring dream that he had it's just a matter of like he didn't think that he would even get to that point of that kind of redemption so because of all of the mistakes that he made and the breaking in and trying to manipulate his parents' marriage and thinking he knew what was best by giving Jordana the isolation, even though it was in a point where she actually really needed him. But he lived in his head. And that's the thing that a lot of men do, um, speaking as one. like We live in our heads and we kind of feel like, okay, well, if I do this, it will appear as though I'm this and I'm not trying to be that. So let me just step aside or let me just isolate myself. So have you have to experience all that in order to get to the other side of it. Be like, okay, I did all that. That didn't work. But now I kind of have a better sense and having that wisdom, just even going back to boy, like that is the wisdom that is accumulated so that you can move forward. And he'll still definitely be flawed. We didn't see anything that suggested that he's going to be a better person. He's still going to be flawed. But 
at least there is a better understanding from that growth that he went through. We talked a little bit about with Boy about how much that that film hinges on that central performance. Um, Craig Roberts, I think, is so great as this character of Oliver. And uh, it's funny because when he was auditioning with Yasmin Page, they basically took them out into the middle of the Welsh countryside, uh, Richard Ayadwadi and his cinematographer, and just shot them just running around and just kind of interacting and and getting a lot of it and a lot of this B-roll that actually ends up in the movie. But the whole time Richard Ayadwadi was yelling at Craig uh, Roberts uh, just so you know Michael Sarah is on backup ready to jump in at any point um, which you know that's going to give him a little bit of stuff but do you think these two suit this role do they have the chemistry to pull it off does this is this a movie that hinges on whether or not you want these people to be in this this movie and if you want them to be together uh I I think they were great I think he was he was so great in this movie um and I, I would I would have hated to see Michael Sarah in this part because I think it would have changed the part. Um, I think he would have been like more awkward, which I, I like that part of, of Michael Sarah, but there's like a sort of like misguided confidence that Oliver has that I think um Craig is really able to pull off. And I really liked uh Yasmin Page as Jordana. I thought she was such an interesting character. Like I mentioned earlier, I was like thinking and wondering if she was gonna be sort of a manic pixie dream girl, especially knowing this sort of time period where we had like Garden State or even I mentioned what 500 Days of Summer. So I was like, is even the way that she's dressed, I was like, is is she going to be this type of girl? But I, I found that like Jordana really did a good or sorry, uh Yasmin as Jordana really did a good job at like giving her this extra life like like when you learn about what's going on in her home life it's like so it's so interesting and it gives you that extra layer to explain why she might like be a little bit more um emotionally cut off you know and not want to like jump like full in with him and do that romantic stuff like when he he wants to have loses virginity to her and he like sets up this crazy like thing with candles and like whatever i was so that was so ridiculous (laughs) well emily you'll like this is richard ayawade actually gave yasmin page a bunch of uh christina ritchie movies and said i need you to watch this because i feel like her inner monologue is constantly just kill like she she has this christina ritchie has this like stillness but you can see the wheels just going click 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 and i think you're definitely seeing that in the jordana performance and you mentioned earlier like that he is isolating himself and withdrawing this is a movie that has a lot of flash around isolation like everybody is like these own pods and if they just said the one stupid thing to each other you know everything would be okay but they're all especially because we're seeing everything through oliver's point of view you are seeing everybody as all these individual islands it doesn't feel like they're isolated, but they are. Yeah, even in the same house, right? Like, it's like they're all in their different rooms. Like, the dad's in the one room, you know, by himself. I, like, I just, I want, I really want to talk about um, and see how you guys felt about the, like, dinner table conversation between Oliver and his dad, where they talk about depression. That was, like, one of my favorite parts of the movie as somebody who lives with depression myself. What does it feel like? Uh, like... Being underwater. Is that why you became a marine biologist? Maybe, yeah. Like, I thought, sort of even going back to the idea of, like, toxic masculinity, that was, like, a nice scene to see between a father and son to be, like, I'm going to be, like, really open with you about, like, what I'm struggling with and maybe something that you're going to struggle with, too. Yeah, because that is something that is 
not a conversation at all between a lot of fathers and their sons or well especially really at the time this is said in the kids, 70s right period. exactly yeah, exactly yeah. um so yeah no that is uh that was a very uh refreshing nice conversation it was wholesome um and it's just a matter of like you know uh being of that era that the movie came out in and what you said is just like you know the therapy generation so the fact that they're was a conversation about that even a conversation with oliver and his uh and his teacher um you know when he when he wrote the the uh reasons to not live anymore mm-hmm. and so like that that cause for concern and whatnot and just like showing that care i'm glad that it came from a male vantage point where um he was there to be uh as a comfort and not someone who was badgering him or trying to like you know really belittle him and make him feel small because he already felt small. He didn't need to feel smaller. So I'm glad that that didn't happen. Tonally, I see a lot in that. Um, and it's very similar to a lot of the stuff that Ben Stiller was doing in this era of the 2000s. Ben, he is also the executive producer of this film. He's one of the re- main reasons this film got made. Is I think he said he'd seen Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which has nothing to do with this, but was written in, and performed in by Richard Ayoade and is also very, very funny. Um, but he saw that, liked it, and was like, sure, I'll give some money to this guy and see what he can do. And the answer is a lot. But this does seem to have his same, like, Walter Mitty sort of sensibility like this is when he was going through his much more like visual and thoughtful sort of sort of time and that's it's interesting he would choose to executive produce a film like this which he has no connection to the UK in that way but he still found that connection yeah well like think about Reality Bites was like one of his was it his first directorial that's his directorial debut yes um and I think that this movie is not exactly the same like like era in terms of uh coming of age but that's another coming of age story and i could see that he would want to like empower somebody else whether they're from the u.s or whatever to sort of tell that kind of story of like what it is like in even a different part of the world to be coming of age and and not know what the right decision is and kind of make mistakes and and be messy and be in love with maybe the wrong person or maybe it's the right person but you're not totally sure yet like it's it's messy and i i could i could just see these movies reality bites in this movie actually like playing quite well together mm. um in different ways about coming of age after you go through university and coming of age when you're a teen all right well as we wrap up this episode i just want to ask you guys does any of this particularly feel late 2000s to you like what about this these movies feel that way that's a that's an interesting observation i didn't i didn't really think of them as being like that kind of era like 2010 seems right about um you know where they happen i think because i think it's because of the fact that i'd never i didn't watch this movie obviously i didn't watch this in 2010 but seeing all watching a lot of indie films within the aughts especially everything that a24 has dropped so going back to it just like okay yeah this feels on brand for this decade because it's all kind of in the same vein so but no that's a interesting observation in terms of like feeling like it's late 2000s but i i got the feeling that it fit right into the decade that it came from yeah i think we were talking about a little bit earlier like i think this was like a new era for the coming of age film in general. And I think this sort of like, uh, there, there was sort of like a twee era, which like, I think these, these films could be assumed to be in that sort of camp, but I don't think that they, they fit there. I think that they're like 
it's like even better than a Wes Anderson movie where I feel like sometimes like the style is over the substance. Whereas here there's lots of style, but the substance is so substantial. And I think that this era, we were kind of exploring that like a mixture, an a, a even mixture of style and substance as opposed to one or the other. Um, and so I think they're distinctively like, early 2010s in that way aesthetically um but i think that they kind of stand out there's lots of other movies from that time that i don't know that i would want to revisit in the same way that i would want to revisit these two uh films because i think that they are adding to the conversation in a way that's different than their peers and they are they do actually strike that perfect balance of like substance and style Perfect. I think that's exactly where we need to end the episode. So, Emily Gagne, thank you for joining us once again this season. Thank you, Becky. Always a joy to talk about coming of age stories <laughs> with you. We'll have more of them. Don't worry. Jordan Hale, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure and this was fun. Thank you. Please tell people how they can see more of your work and hear and read and all the other fun oh, stuff. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I I edit TV, so currently working on a CTV show, half hours called Acting Good that comes out in the fall. But my website, JordanHalesEditor.com, has uh, a list of shows that I have worked on. Next Stop, Tall Boys, uh, Last One Laughing Canada, a whole bunch of good stuff for you to watch. Featuring friend of the show, Jay Baruchel. So <laughs> go check it out. Uh, thank you once again for joining us. Thank right. you. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Emily Gagne and Jordan Hales as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.